Herds and Curds with Carmen and Leanne, bringing you conversations with farmhouse cheesemakers and dairy producers. The first Sunday of the month at 7am on your favourite station, 3CR, 3CR Digital and 3cr.org.au. Hello folks, you're listening to Herds and Curds on 3CR Community Radio. Today we are in Birches Bay, Tasmania at the farm of Nicole Gilliver of Grandview Cheese. Tell us, what year did you start your sheep's milk cheese production? So we started here in 2002. And let's just describe your view because you've got this incredible view over mm-hmm. the channel. Mm-hmm. We can see Bruni Island. Yeah, so it, do- it does feed into the name. Um, the reason for the name is a bit of a play on words because the view is so grand. It's, it's very aptly described yep. or called Grandview yep. Cheese. Yep, some people still think we can't spell, but, um, <laughs> you know, the view is grand, of that there is no doubt. And what breed of sheep do you milk and why have you chosen this breed? So we started with East Frisians because they were the only dairy breed that we could get. Um, there was no point in looking at some kind of composite breed because when you deal with a milking animal you need dedicated dairy genetics for milk composition and other reasons. Um, so we were in effect stuck with East Frisians. We um, knew that we could procure a little known um, exotic breed called the Awasi, but the genetics were very highly um, and tightly held by a company um, that was set up in Australia but owned by an Arab consortium. Um, Eventually we managed to procure some of those genetics and now we effectively crossed the two out to, I guess, have our own breed which is called the Grandview Dairy Sheep which we do a lot of work with in in a consultancy realm. Mm -hmm. It's in effect given us a very, very durable breed without compromising milk yields nor milk composition which was ultimately what we needed. So the East Frisians, they're great, uh, they've got a high production, do they? They are exceptional. So um, they're one of the highest yielding milking sheep in, sheep in the world. Okay, and the Awasi? The is... Awasi is a composite breed. So it's from? It's from, well, let's call the region Persia. Okay. So they're a fat-tailed sheep. They're the fattest of fat-tailed sheep in the world. They are held in most numbers still in around Lebanon, uh, Israel, mm-hmm. uh, Greece, Bulgaria, those regions. They have two strains. One is a meat strain, one is a milk strain. Mm-hmm. Um, the milk strain produces exceptional quality milk and exceptional yields for a great lactation length, but the problem with the animals is their udder conformation. Mm-hmm. Um, their udders hang low, their suspendary ligaments poor. When you cross them out with an East Frisian, if you're lucky, in the hybrid vigour, you'll actually get great suspendary ligaments, great milk yield, great durability, the whole box and dice. And in terms of fat and protein levels? Great. Fantastic. Okay, so they're the two things we're looking for in cheese making, and so you're able to achieve really great levels of of the two with that crossbreed. And how many animals do you have? How many do you milk here? So we milk up to 80. We hold up to 200 for a variety of different reasons. Um... We recently have contracted milk production, so originally we were farmhouse exclusively. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are not, for anyone who's actually been to our Grandview um, farmhouse, we are not in a region that produces prolific amounts of, of grass. 
Um, the cost of land here has gone up immensely, which has its benefits and its drawbacks, but what it all means is essentially we can't run a flock mm. any greater than 200 mm -hmm. on the property. Okay. And then what size landscape? Uh, we have 40 acres that we own and we lease another 80 to 100. Okay. Yeah. Fantastic. Which seasonally fluctuates. All right. So you have a, a, a farmhouse production of milk and then you purchase uh, milk you know, from other Tasmanian farmers as well. Spot on. Okay. And just going back to your herd, tell, describe your relationship with your herd or let's talk a little bit about the animal husbandry that, you know, has become your method yep. on this farm. Yep. So essentially, um, if you leave the, the genetics out of it, we've already sort of spoken about what we do as far as our crossbreed goes. Essentially, our season lasts seven months as far as lactation goes. So mm -hmm. they physically dry up. Um, or they start to switch their hormones from lactation hormones to mating hormones around the summer solstice. Okay. So it's daylight dependent. So we're on the, the downhill slope now. And is that milking once a day or twice a day? We milk once a day because we pay staff to milk our animals. Um, if you were to cost out labour... Uh, for the extra milking mm -hmm. and pit it against yield with regards to where we milk and, and our business model, then it becomes at best revenue neutral. Okay. And so, but it's quite common, isn't it, for sheep farmers to milk once a day? It's common. The standard practice as far as, you know, what would be globally acceptable is twice a day. Oh, right. So in areas of France, in Aveyron, Roquefort for that production, twice a day is the done thing. Oh, okay. Um, in Spain, in around La Mancha, where they make manchego, mm -hmm. same thing. But cost of labour is vastly different, so we need to consider these kinds of factors as Australian farmhouse and artisan cheesemakers with regards to those kinds of things. Mm. And in terms of animal husbandry, do you think that there are certain advantages of milking once a day? Because I always consider milking an animal, they're... You know, they're a working animal on your farm, so is, does it actually make life a little bit easier for them if they're only coming into the... I think it makes life a hell of a lot easier. Yeah. They are all hand-reared, so the notion to me that anyone would believe that it creates huge amounts of stress is, is, is not a huge factor in, in deciding about a second milking or not. Mm. Um, but any milk giving animal that has to have milk extracted you know multiple times a day you know it's not hugely pleasant mm. it, they, I'd probably rather be out eating grass and you know chilling out in the sunshine than, mm. <laughs> than coming through the milking bales um, and there's some data out there that that suggests that they actually live longer when they're milked once a day. On a once a day milking. Mm, I can believe that because mm. I suppose, yeah, output. What's the drop um, of from, from going from two milkings a day to one litre? There is a small percentage of milk yeah, loss, yeah. isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. So you lose oh. about 5% on average. Oh, okay. It's not, yeah. it's not a great deal. It's not huge. Mm. No. Not if you know what you're doing on the milking bales. And your girls are all chilled out when they're coming through. And, they and your animals are relaxed, aren't they? They are pretty chill. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, like I said, they're hand-reared, so... Um, part of the hand rearing process is actually to desensitise them to any any of these stresses. Mm. You know, anything unfamiliar is stressful for a lot of us. Mm. That's true. You're listening to 3CR Radio. 
And what about your farming practices? What are sort of the, some of the agricultural challenges? You've spoken a little bit about the landscape, that it's quite dry. Yeah, I think being in Tasmania has its benefits and its drawbacks. Obviously, we live in a beautiful part of the world where, you know, tourists want to come and, and, and they want to see what we do and understand, by and large, why we do it. The imperative, I think, with regards to sheep dairying is that you get your business model and your pricing right. Mm-hmm. Um, and that means two percenters from everywhere, from what you do in the paddocks to what you do in the shed to who you employ at the milking bales to who you've got cutting your curds to who you've got selling your product. And to that end, you know, that has impacted our farming practices because the cost of milk is so great. Mm. Um, We estimate on farm that if we're being inefficient or let's say best efficiency, um, our cost per litre is about $3.90. Okay. So you look at that and you know from a business perspective that wherever you can, you need to be making mm. the 2% decisions. Mm. So to that end, we have a shed with a deep litter composting floor that essentially, in layman's terms, in winter is underfloor heating. Mm-hmm. That underfloor heating provides us with compost for the paddocks. And so um, once a year or twice a year? you spend... Once a year we actually bring the compost out of the shed. So mm-hmm. the shed is great to clean currently. Mm-hmm. Um, that compost is then turned and adjusted before it goes on the paddock in the autumns. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're developing or generating our own fertiliser, which in effect during season is underfloor heating for the girls who've had their wool taken off in the middle of winter. That's yeah. um, Actually, that's a great question because why... When I see shorn sheep in winter, I'm always worried, actually. I think, oh, that's not a time to shear a sheep just before winter. For us, it's important for hygiene as much as anything else. So when they give birth, it's important to us that they don't have wool everywhere because Mm. on occasions you do need to intervene. So that's one factor. But the main factor is that if you take wool off in the middle of winter then their body compensates. It kind of kicks in a different metabolic property that facilitates and aids gestation, particularly Mm -hmm. in late gestation. Um, It increases their appetite uh, over a couple of weeks and they produce lanolin that basically is the wool fat that coats the outside of their body that is an insulator. So they just replace one insulation method with another. It's not a, a huge thing. They go from the insulator being wool to the insulator being wool fat. Okay, and the timing of that is important for in terms of their gestation, that then they're also fattening up for That's right. the, the birth of That's their, right. their lambs. It's very interesting. Mm. Let's have a look at your working day. What does it look like? My working day has varied. So if I go back to the days when we first started the business, the working day started at about five with the first milking, and then that milk would go into the vat and we would, um, whilst the milk went into the vat and was starting to pasteurise, we'd throw some breakfast in our face <laughs> and then run back downstairs to check on pasteurisation and then the cheese, depending on what was being made, um, would be underway. And that process obviously entails for us pasteurisation, bringing back down to temperature, inoculating with lactic acid bacteria, followed by rennet, and then there'd be all sorts of cutting techniques or not cutting techniques or cooking techniques or not cooking techniques that would eventually result in in cheese probably coming out of the vat between 3pm and 6pm. Ooh, long working day. A blue cheese make is typically still a 12-hour day. Wow. 
even though since the days that I just referred to, we've deployed an accelerator in the form of making a soup before we actually um, inoculate the milk for blue cheese. What's the soup? Does that mean you, you start curdling? No, we, well, essentially we inoculate some pasteurised milk the night before and incubate it overnight okay. to, to start the bacterial right. activity. So those, those lazy kind of frozen cultures... You know, being in Australia, you've used them, I've used them. We still have to use freeze-dried cultures down here. We're pretty reliant on it, aren't we? Mm -hmm. It's yeah. yeah. I mean, there are other ways. Do you use any um, natural starters or no, waste, no. waste so starters? One of, one of the other challenges we face down here is a dairy industry authority that can be quite challenging to deal mm. with. So new ideas, particularly at the moment, are difficult to pass muster shall yeah. we say, irrespective of the due diligence or science behind it. Um, at the end of the day, our dairy regulator down here has official say, and that impacts on, to a large extent, what we at Grandview choose to produce because we just don't have the energy to challenge them at this point yeah. in time. You know, there are, there are other places in Australia where their, their dairy authorities are structured differently that enables different abilities to do different things. I think one of the challenges also is that in Tasmania there's not a dedicated dairy association actually, as in Victoria. In terms of regulation it's quite strict, however it does have good um, resources through Dairy Food Safety Victoria that are mm. available to mm. producers or people wanting to start up a, a farmhouse production. Or well as evidenced by the Indigenous Culture Program, yeah. you know, we, I, I would shudder to think how we would actually pass that via the, the dairy authority down here. I know that that's going to be challenged by another company in the foreseeable future and I wish them the best and I think they have the fortitude and the pluck to actually mm. you know, push the buttons that need to be pushed, but we'll leave it to them. You're tuned to 3CR 855 on your m Tell us a little bit about the products you make. Uh, we make up to 15 different styles, which is extremely seasonal and highly challenging. For those of you who don't know, used milk is naturally homogenous for the most part. So the idea of separating out fats is really just not an exercise that any of us undertake, which means we get massive fluctuations in fat and protein from the start of the season. Mm -hmm. So we can run at 4 4.5% fat protein each per litre of milk at the start of the season and run as high as 8 up to 8.5% at the end of season. So the notion of making the same style of cheese from the same recipe and the same techniques for the seven months of the year that we're in production is just a foofy. Wow, so you've got this great diversity in fat and protein levels. Yes. A cheesemaker once t said to me that um, sheep's milk wants to become cheese, and, and this is why, isn't it? Because you've got these great yield qualities. Yeah, absolutely, which, um, you know, makes it incredibly challenging to work with, but also incredibly rewarding when you actually mm. manage to interpret that correctly, bearing in mind that 
the vast majority of people in the artisanal farmhouse industry actually don't have the tools at hand to mm. measure fat and protein as it comes in. And do you? We have SIO. SIO is basically a light meter that refracts, for lack of a better expression, off milk, a lot of different liquids, um, different powders, different surfaces, and will give you as accurate an indicator as you're able to get for uh, a low cost. Mm -hmm. I can't remember what it cost us. I think it was under $1,000. It's an Israeli device that was recommended to us via ASCA. Mm -hmm. um, and we bought one about six months ago, and we love it because okay. it gives us moisture as well, which is another barometer of you know how we're tracking with... So, in, so you can test liquid milk? Liquid milk, you can test any number of substances. So as, as you develop a curd, then you can also look at the moisture content Spot of on. your curd. Absolutely. Mm. Um, which doesn't eliminate issues associated with too much or too little moisture. It's, it's more information in your cheese make, but then you have to also understand how you react. That's right. And then you have to have time to forensically go through it when things do go wrong and to get an historical understanding mm. of... Well, do I need to leave more moisture in there? If so, you know, what are my impacts on pH? Blah, 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 blah. Sure. So we got, we got to blue cheese. We make blue cheese. We make a semi-hard manchego-style cheese. We make um, a lot of fresh curd in varying forms. So we marinate it. We have it as one kilo food service. We uh, have it as a take-home ingredient cheese. Um, that fresh curd comprises a huge... Um, percentage of what we actually produce. Um, we produce a suite of washed rind cheeses which number in five depending on the time of the season. Okay so seasonally yeah well of course you need to to vary your cheese production based on the fat and protein levels in mm -hmm. your cheese. Mm -hmm. Okay yep. Uh, blue we make all season. Mm -hmm. um, we just need to and it does take a lot of time to explain to the end user that um, not every batch will be the same. Mm -hmm. In fact, sometimes there are wild swings. Okay. Um, so the requirement in our business to actually communicate to the end user the nature of what we do is huge. Yeah, well, it's a great... You, you have a... Um, you have a cellar door, so you have this great opportunity to talk to your consumer about the product and mm -hmm. actually educate people about cheese making and farmhouse cheese making. Yeah, that's right. And, and look... It's a never-ending investment for us in the way we've chosen to go about things. But I don't know that we actually would still be around if we weren't explaining constantly to mm. the uninitiated and to, you know, the well-versed mm. why we do what we do, how we do mm. what we do. And do you think people are becoming more, enga one, more engaged but, and also um, are evolving, evolving in their palates, evolving in their consumer choices? Absolutely. Absolutely. When we first opened the business in 2002, the consumer reaction to making cheese from sheep milk was vastly different to mm. now. Really, but you are only a handful of producers in Australia, aren't you? Yeah, and sadly, um, the second largest sheep dairy in the country has just gone out of business. Oh, that's terrible. So if you do not get your business model right in this section of the industry, you will go out the back door, as evidenced by a multitude of long-term producers as well as short-term mm. producers. The other product we do make is, is yoghurt. Mm -hmm. um, we do small amounts of yoghurt. And so can most of your production, cheese and yoghurt, um, is it mostly sold in Tasmania? Yep. 
100%? No, no, not 100%. We do have small amounts of distribution, mostly into food service in New South Wales. So a lot of our external business is done based on gut feel and trust. Mm. We don't enjoy working with people who... Or we just choose not to work with people who are difficult. Mm. And so to that end, by and large, we have really restricted um, our own growth outside of the island. Well, it's one of the exciting things about Tasmania, really, isn't it, that lots of the food production in Tasmania is consumed in Tasmania. Yep. And that's not... You can't really say that about other states in Australia, actually. So it is a unique part of the agriculture of this island. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Hello, I am Gabriel Gatte. 3CR is like a souffle, a challenge to make, but it can just go higher and higher and higher. Support 3CR. Okay, whey is one of the biggest waste products in cheese-making process. Some people feed it to pigs, some people feed it to their animals that are producing the milk. You guys have found an alternative method. What mm-hmm. is it? So we produce a whey-based vodka and gin. Well, you distill it. We distill it. So we take our whey, we ferment it, and the manner in which we ferment that is a closely held secret. The problem with whey is that um, you're trying to ferment lactose, which doesn't ferment, so you have to go through a series of steps to actually facilitate the ferment of the product. And my mother and I are the cheesemakers, and my brother has always done the sales and marketing, and, and he became quite disillusioned a couple of years ago with his role within what we were doing and decided that distillation was his shtick. And so he started experimenting with whey. So he started experimenting with whey because we already had a philosophy of trying to upcycle with a couple of products and with our agricultural side of the business, so the you know, closed circle of farming, etc., etc., etc. So he set about trying to develop a product that fed back into that waste not want not upcycle philosophy and he's come up with what is currently still the world's best vodka. Well that is incredible. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And so whey has been one of the challenges that you know is part of a cheesemaker's life. What are some of the other challenges that you guys have faced as farmhouse cheesemakers or as artisan cheesemakers? Water is one. Water in Australia. Uh, so we are exclusively on tank water for okay. every ounce of production. Mm-hmm. So you're extremely careful with the... We were the first ever dry floor factory in the country to have okay. a licence. Mm. And we are still dry floor. Mm. For those who don't know, that means that we don't spray hoses everywhere, we don't waste water in anything we do, except probably, if truth be known, about 100 litres during a dairy cycle clean... Mm-hmm. and about 60 to 100 litres on your average day in the factory for wash-up and vac clean-down and tool clean-down. It's great that you put those literages on there because actually, you know, milking machines can use terrible amounts of water. Same in the cheese room. Particularly, You visit European cheese rooms and they're ludicrous in the amount of water that they're using and we can't afford to learn those practices here, actually. Mm. So a dry floor... 
has the advantages of uh, water saving, but it's also it's a bacterial better. inhibitor. That's right. So it's much better for your cheese production mm. as well, isn't it? Yep, absolutely. It doesn't mean to say that you know we have everything in hand. We we just make very very gallant efforts, and it's been part of our business philosophy from the get go to minimise waste and conserve where we can. Mm. Mm. It's a great it's a great practice. So in Australia, we don't have a very big history of cheese making. What resources? are available to you? What do you do when you've got a problem? Speak to the guys in ASCA. Uh, ASCA. So it's, the Australian, it's, Australian Specialist Cheese Makers yeah. Association. Look, it's, it's been a lifeline for us, to be honest with you. I mean, we, we live in a, on a vast continent where the depth of knowledge outside of commodity dairy products is shallow at mm. best. You know, if you want to talk about cheddar grading or butter grading with someone, then fine. You know, they're a dime a dozen. But artisan and farmhouse cheesemakers, until ASCA under the current stewardship came along and offered us a lifeline, it was very fragmented and the level of knowledge, um, real knowledge out there was, was seriously limited. Mm. And I think that had a huge impact on quality and consistency. Mm. And I think the other advantage of ASCA is that during those sort of training programs that they sort of annually organise is that also it was started to build relationships Absolutely. with other cheesemakers. Yeah, without a shadow of a doubt. Mm. So you felt less isolated. Mm. And when you made fundamental mistakes, you felt all of a sudden like there were other people who'd made those mistakes and there were people from whom you could garner some, some kind of sense or information. Do you feel optimistic about where we're going as an industry? Super optimistic, mm. yeah. Um, I wish regulation would actually catch up with, and I'm probably speaking just with regards to Tasmania, um, I, I wish the regulators would actually get on board with this. I, I actually wish that there was a regulator who had the foresight to um, attend some of these ASCA events. Yeah, we have in the past had some regulators attend ASCA events, it's true. We do see it in other parts of the world where regulators are also a resource for um, cheesemakers. I think in Tasmania it's been particularly difficult because our regulators are our government, they're inextricably linked. Mm. Um, and so when you have shifting sands of agricultural ministers um, it makes life a little bit difficult for them. And also governments that don't necessarily support agriculture, or sm and particularly small production. Yep. What advice would you give to someone wanting to become a farmhouse cheesemaker? You've got to spend a little to make a little. Mm. And if you want to make a success of um, your business idea with regards to artisan and farmhouse cheese making, then I would strongly advise that you somehow either indenture yourself or contract or join ASCAR, seek some advice from people who've been in it for a long time. Get involved in the cheese making community. Get involved and, and you will benefit for low cost immensely mm. from doing that. But don't expect to get something for nothing. You will have to spend some money to make some money in people, in their intellectual property, in mm. their experience. Mm. For me, if I was starting out again, I would probably, in my start-out budget, allocate 
not insignificant funds to direct towards picking someone's brain. The more you know about that, you know, the less the mistakes that you will inevitably make will cost you down the track. Mm, that's right. Okay, well, thank you so much for your time today. We'll let you get back to work. Maybe we'll go and explore the beautiful beaches around here or see the coastal view that we're admiring. Uh, thanks again to Nicole from Grandview Jerry. Pleasure.